Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are continuing in 1 Samuel and we'll be jumping into Chronicles, uh, which I hope you all found a riveting transition. Uh, but we will wrap up at least uh, the first half of, of what it was the single scroll of Samuel today. And so uh, we pick up uh, where David is still off with the Philistines, uh, but there's some that don't just don't trust David. Uh, maybe rightfully so. He did cut off a bunch of foreskins of a bunch of them, which uh, probably might leave a might leave a lasting impression. And so, uh, yeah. But the, but the king is just like a, the biggest fan of David. I just find it to be really interesting that he's like David, be my uh, bodyguard. David, I trust him. He's honest. Like there was that time he came and he was crazy, and then there was that time, yeah, he circumcised two hundred of our people. But he's like really a great guy, and I trust him with everything. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah, Akish at least ends up sort of being reasonable here and being like, look, my army, there's a bunch of people who don't really appreciate uh, you being here. And so, David, I'm going to ask you to go back home uh, and I'm going to go into battle without you, which ends up working out quite well on multiple fronts. Yeah, we'll probably talk about it in a few minutes, but it was really God's sovereign hand at work in an, on a number of different levels here. So David heads back and then they find that the Amalekites have taken and captured all of their wives. Yeah. And, and David's men are, don't even seem very happy with him about all that's happened. And so they're ready to kill David. But I love the phrase, David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. That, yeah. um, it wasn't just the Lord strengthened him and David was passive. There's sort of an activeness of like, maybe remembering God's promises, maybe remembering God's goodness, whatever it is that ultimately strengthened David here. He, he, he walked through that. Yeah. And that's a pattern that we see in David. And we talked last week about how um, there are times that we stopped seeing David practice that. And that's where some of his acts and decisions were a little bit more questionable, but we're back here to God submitting himself to the Lord, turning to God in prayer and worship. And then the Lord gave him wisdom and direction and how to proceed. Yep. So they proceed. And uh, they go out, with, David goes out with, well, before consulting with God through the priest, David goes out uh, with 600 men. Uh, that kind of gets trimmed down to 400. This sort of feels a little bit like a story we've heard before. Um, and uh, along the way, they meet him in an Egyptian. They care for him and, and then they sort of restore him. He was rejected by the Amalekites because they thought he was a burden. And and they ultimately get juicy information out of him, which I think is going to play into the next story anyways. Uh, so David goes, they take back everything that they lost, just as God promised that was going to happen. Uh, and then some, he gets some spoils as well. Uh, randomly 400 get away on camels. I don't know why they introduced that. I'm, I'm waiting to connect the dots, but we find out that that happens. Uh, but then when they go back home, there's this whole conversation about about um, how to divide the spoils. And I think I think that random Egyptian story actually ties in quite a bit here because the Amalekites were traveling with this Egyptian and they decided to leave him behind because they just felt like he, he had no purpose, no worth. He wasn't going to be able to continue. He can't fight. He can't uh, do the things that, that they want him to do. But yet, what was rejected by the Amalekites, this, this man ended up having tremendous value for the, for the Israelites, that, that this man who couldn't fight still had value. And I wonder if David returns feeling the same way of going, look, these 200 men couldn't go with us. They couldn't fight, but they still have value. They're still valuable to who we are as a people. Just because they couldn't fight doesn't mean we should come back and destroy them or something like the book of Judges sometimes tells those stories. And so um, David, David finds them still worthy of the spoils of the victory. Yeah. And I thought of, um, I thought of the, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, like we just read about in Matthew. And of course, Jesus says, are we to, to begrudge the generosity of God? And it's a reminder for us that we don't 
we don't earn anything from God based on what we do or do not do, but it's it's grace alone. And it's really our status in being image bearers and being God's people. Um, and so I think that's what earns us what we have. And so, so meanwhile, yeah, back on, on another battlefront yeah. uh, elsewhere, uh, Saul's entire existence, which has been fighting, 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 war, 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 will end on the battlefield. Um, he lives by the sword and he dies by the sword, as Jesus will go on to say. And it's, it's to me, there was a little bit of sadness going, ah, oh, Jonathan had to go too. And Jonathan had been so good. Jonathan had been faithful. Jonathan had disagreed with his dad. He had sided with David, all these sort of things. But because of his dad and the lineage of his dad's kingship, uh, Jonathan yeah. goes with the rest of the sons. And I think that's where we just have to kind of step back for a minute and remember that, you know, twice in two different places of the Psalms, it says the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. And, um, all of our existence is to fulfill some sort of purpose for God. And we want that to be a long life of fruitfulness and prosperity or whatever. But in the case of Jonathan, God created him and he, I mean, and, and this may, what I'm saying right now doesn't have anything to do whether with whether he's saved or not, but, um, but God created Jonathan for a purpose and he mm-hmm. fulfilled that purpose. And it in some ways feels like unfair or unjust, but then I have to step back and remember um like the true, I don't the true goodness and faithfulness of God in that anything God has given me, um, I also don't deserve or I'm not deserving of any, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but this idea <laughs> that, uh, that God fulfilled his purpose or Jonathan's purpose was fulfilled before God, yep. even if it's not how I wanted it to end, God did his sovereign and good work through Jonathan. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah, and we've seen, yeah, we've seen Jonathan do some tremendous things in the name of Yahweh. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, and I also think it's really interesting just to line up what's happening with David in dealing with the Amalekites versus Saul and dealing with the Philistines. We see, you know, Saul just gone to the medium of Endor. Saul trusts in himself, and we see David trusting in God. And Saul is constantly fighting for what he knows he is not going to gain. And David waits patiently for the Lord to work. Um yeah. Yeah, which is which ties into some of my final thoughts on at least this first half of Samuel of um watching Saul who really uh, was appointed because of his physical prowess and probably his ability to 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 enter battles and continues in his whole life not really always waiting on the Lord, not trusting in, in Yahweh's ability to be the battle winner, um, all those sort of things. He was doing so much on his own power, which one of those stories leads to his whole downfall. And um, and David, who's who's been promised all these things, but it's constantly sort of waiting. It's like waiting for God to deal with Saul. He's waiting for, to take the throne. Like the whole last few, last week's stories were David going, reminding Saul, like I could have killed you, but I'm waiting. I'm waiting for God to do what God's going to do. And we see that in Hannah of like waiting for God ultimately to, to be the, the, the opener of her womb. We see that in Samuel. And so um, there's definitely this portrayal of, will we continue just to trust God to, to be our battle or, um, or to, to, to fight our own battles. And I mean, it's certainly worship lyrics, nowadays that are in my head when I say that, but I'm like, that, that is how I fight my battles is, is to, 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 to wait on the Lord, to, to let the Lord go into those battles with me and not try to be the one who just rushes in uh, without him. Yeah. I think similarly, you know, I think this is a really good book to do this kind of character study of Saul versus David. Now David will make his own sinful decisions later on, but right now we really see, um, 
just a huge contrast between Saul and David. And so to look and see the patterns in their behavior and what they fought for and what they worked for and how they trusted in God or did not trust in God is a good example to me. And I think um, what I see here, what I learn and what I'm challenged in is this ruthless and uncompromising submission to the Lord. I don't always understand his ways and it may look at times like God has forgotten or abandoned me, but he's always at work and we can trust him. I can trust him in each and every circumstance, even if I'm still like Dave was, David was in the cave and not yet king yep. in the process. And then we enter into uh, the, the first of two books of Chronicles. But once again, this is another example of a book that originally is really one uh, that gets divided into two. And uh, it's important to note this book is the finale. If if you have a Jewish uh, collection of scriptures, if, if you're reading the Jewish Bible, um, this is the finale of the Old Testament. And it's rightful because uh, time-wise, in terms of what it's telling, it's kind of leading up to uh, the restoration uh, of Israel before ultimately the Greeks and Romans come to town. And so um, it, it ends with the sort of this pe- kind of air of hope uh, of, of, mm-hmm. of the temple being rebuilt and all those sort of things. And it's interesting because... Um, Samuel and Kings will cover some of the the sins of like passion uh, and idolatry and some of the, the the interrelational things with David and his family or Solomon and 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 I'll cover a lot of those when Chronicles written way later hundreds of years later kind of looks back on David and Solomon and and tells it a, a bit differently things like David and Bathsheba are just completely left out of the story um, as if the chroniclers including different details mm-hmm. and and it's important to pick those up I, I think I'll probably highlight those as we get to them I don't want to give away too much of of where I think like the chronicler um, starts pointing out the, the the downfall of David and the downfall of Solomon but um, but it's it's interesting because yeah you, you you get 100 years removed they look back and going okay that was a great time for us we we were unified we did have mm. kings that that kept us unified and and on some level the kings that 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 did obedient things at times but there was also something that they did that that was not right and so as we rebuild let's let's remember that unification let's remember our good kings but also remember some of the ways that that they they built something that that we don't want to build again um and so yeah i think that's all important uh, tied in there um yeah and the first nine chapters so really what we're going to read over the next couple of weeks is just genealogy yay everybody's favorite um <laughs> but the chronicler is retelling uh the, from his or her uh, position in history. So what they choose to highlight, who they choose to highlight, those things kind of matter. So it's almost looked, look to what they include and what they leave mm-hmm. out more than anything else uh, as you read through. Yeah. And so we start with Adam, which is really important. But what the chronicler here is doing is pointing out the direct link between Adam and Abraham uh, to show that Israel is the focus of God's purpose from the beginning of creation. Yeah. And 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 that continues from Abraham to Jacob and to the 12 tribes. And, and it's important to remember, this is coming at a time when uh, they've been all been, a lot of Israel has been out in captivity. And so they are, these tribes are returning to the land. They're, they're, they're coming back. They're going to restore this kingdom, but they've all been disjointed. Not all of them are there. Mm-hmm. there there's all this sort of thing. And so um, I think that what the chronicler is also presenting is like, look, we we are still this one thing that we started with Adam. They went through Noah um, and, and eventually to Abraham and Jacob and the 12 tribes. Like we're all brethren in a way. We're all 12 tribes under this one lineage. And so um, I think it's a way to sort of tell the story to bring the, the sort of unity back to the, this group that's all coming back. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then uh, we get the covering of Judah to David. So uh, David is in the line of Judah. I think the Chronicle is just reminding us of the, the, the line that was promised and ultimately came true through David. Mm-hmm. And then we get the descendants of David. David had multiple wives since he had a bunch of kids. Same with Solomon. He had multiple wives and a bunch of kids. Um, and we'll see in later stories that this maybe didn't work out the best for David. So just because it's written here doesn't mean that it's okay. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a fact here without a whole lot of commentary right now. Um, and uh, we, we we trace all the kings of Judah. Um, it's probably important to note a little bit of history here because we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit. Um, we haven't covered all this happening. Um, Israel after – so David – we're reading about David being the king. Eventually his son Solomon becomes the king. And after Solomon, the, the whole kind of kingdom breaks apart into two big groups. Uh, there's nine tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, and then the Levites are spread throughout. <clears throat> and so um, it becomes the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah um, because Judah is like the main tribe of the southern kingdom. And so <clears throat> you have this big division. Uh, they have a whole bunch of kings that go really poorly. Uh, some of them are all right. A lot of them are bad. And eventually they're judged for just the awfulness of, of this time period. And, um, and there's three groups that ultimately come in over the course of time. First is, uh, the, the way I remember this is alphabetically. The first is the Assyrians. Uh, the second is the Babylonians and the third is the Persians. And so, um, each of these groups is going to come. The Assyrians are going to take out the Northern kingdom. They never quite get the Southern kingdom. Um, the Babylonians and Persians will take out both and put a bunch of people in exile. And so, um, as we encounter, it's always good to remember that history to kind of know we're going to talk about the prophets who speak to different kingdoms at different times, uh, which is also really important to know. Um, but uh, for us to, to kind of see as as the history is going right now, because we're kind of jumping around a little bit right now, as the history is going to know kind of that's what's happening or that's what's happened um, that the chronicler is referring to. Yeah. Descendants of Judah, uh, we get we hear about some of them. We hear about Jabez. There's a whole book about him, uh, and in his prayer, and and then descendants of Simeon. Uh, and so uh, remember these these are some of the the, the groups we're we're going to hear about Judah. We're going to hear about Benjamin a lot. We're going to hear about the Levites, uh, Benjamin and Levites a little more next week. Uh, those are some of the the bigger groups that it sounds like are coming back. Uh, in and yeah, we hear about the Simeonites. Yeah who sort of get absorbed into Judah at some point. So um, that's part of their history as well. All right, New Testament. Um, we pick up in a parable. Remember where we're at. Jesus is, is in the temple. He is interacting with some of the leadership in the temple here. He has just been challenged of his authority by the leadership. Um, and then he tells these stories of two sons. And as, as I've noted, as we've walked through Matthew, there's always like a second layer of what Jesus is doing or something deeper that particularly Jews who know their text or know their history are really going to pick up on. And, and I wonder if that's happening here, uh, that there's a very plain reading. And I think the, the plain reading and the application is true, but this whole two son thing, like um, it, it could be Jacob and Esau, it could be multiple stories, but you also have a story in, in David of him appointing two priests. Um, and suddenly you had two priests in charge, which is a bit odd. Um, and one was Zadok, who actually be- goes on to be the father of the Pharise- or the Sadducees, and then Abiathar, who becomes uh, another priest. And Zadok goes on to really become the main priest, and Abiathar sort of kind of gets kicked to the curb for siding with him. We'll get to that story. And um, 
So one is called the priesthood, but, but by Jesus's time, they're not doing any of the stuff the priests are supposed to be doing. And then John is out in the desert and he is doing, and, and he's a son of a priest, so he would be in the priesthood too. Um, he, he is doing the work of the priesthood and he's likely in, in the line of Abiathar and all these Sadducees are in Zadok. And, and he is calling people to repentance. He's, he's speaking about the, the, the Sadducees needing to repent. And he's doing all of that. People are coming to know to, to repent and to, to know Yahweh. He's doing the work of a priest out in the desert when all these people are calling themselves a priest and not doing anything. And I think that story is really playing it out of like, look, like it's great to say you care about the things of God, but if you don't do them, like the one who, who, who God values is the one who, who, who lives it out. And, and mm-hmm. John is the one who's living it out in the desert. And, and so he is the son that, that the father would be happy with or proud of. So it's just such a, punch in the face i think to these guys yeah i mean i think w- what we see and we'll see a lot through the rest of our conversation over the next couple of weeks is that jesus regularly calls these leaders out for hypocrisy they talk the talk but they don't walk the walk and i think we have to step back and and be warned in this as well many people many christians grew up in the church they have all the right answers but do you live in such a way that jesus has transformed your life and your allegiance so that you really are committed to him and him alone um, let's make sure we're practicing what we preach and we're doing what we say or we're doing what we read and really talk about. Yeah. And then we get the parable of the tenants, um, which I think if you were uh, uh, a, a temple leader right now, you'd probably actually hear the story as if the tenants were Romans and that they uh, they were the, the servants that keep getting beaten and keep getting kind of pushed down. Um, I think they would have heard it a little bit differently, but I think the way we tend to read it um, is actually how it ends up being played out where, um, cause I think Jesus at that Psalm 119 cornerstone reference ultimately is pointing out like, look, you guys are the ones who are rejecting, uh, the, the stone and, uh, that's about to become the cornerstone. And, um, it, it's interesting because Isaiah, um, Isaiah talks a lot about this vineyard thing and, 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 um, even God returning to his vineyard. Um, by Isaiah 61, you also had a, a prophecy of one day there will be foreigners tending to the vineyard. And, uh, I think that's, it's actually a good prophecy. It's actually God saying like, look, that that's part mm-hmm. of the future of Israel and in, in a good way. Um, and I think, I think the Sadducees have never understood their role in, in how to both tend the vineyard and and care and bless and, and desire um, the foreigners to also eat of the fruit of what God has. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a condemnation, I think on both ways If you don't care for your people, you don't tend to the vineyard correctly. And you also are fighting against foreigners coming and eating the fruit too, which is what God desires for mm-hmm. his people. Um, yeah. And he's pointing out the fact that they want power and control more than they want really the fruit or the blessing of the vineyard. Yep. And then we get a story of the wedding feast, which, I mean, I always love stories like this where the kingdom of God's compared to a party. Like, I just think that's so cool that what, what, what one of the ways that, that the, um, a metaphor works about the kingdom of God is like, it's like a party. It's like this banquet. It's like this thing. And, and, and people should be excited in the invitation. And I think you just pointed out like, look, that invitation's happened for, for, for in the past. And, and there's many of you who, who, who pass on the invitation of, of participating in the very party, the very thing, and, and inviting others in that God wants. And um, there's some conversation about judgment. It's hard to think whether that was about the Greeks or Romans or about something that we're about to cover of things to come. But um, it, it's, it's, 
It's God's going to have the party. And even, even if those before that were invited get rejected, like God's still going to have the party and he's going to fill his banquet halls with anybody who's coming, who's going, willing to come and be part of the, of, of the celebration, the good, the bad, which I, I, I love that Matthew's telling a story because I'm sure he's like, I, I wasn't on the good side, but I'm invited to the party. Yeah. And I wonder in, in our evangelism and our sharing of, of the good news, if we feel that way, if we feel like we're extending invitations to God's party to people, um, are we enthusiastic that way? Um, but also, are we willing to also heart check? Are, are we some that like totally miss out on what God's doing in, in his invitation and, and bringing people into himself where there's some that, that he's invited and are drawing in, but sometimes we're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. And, and, um, miss out on God's working in, 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 in the world, um, and then we get to this weird end section where somebody shows up and they don't have the right clothes on, stuff like that. Um, and and I, I go to Zephaniah 1. Uh, there's this whole um, condemnation judgment moment where it's certainly uh, against the, he calls them the idolatrous priesthood. Um, and he speaks about consecrated guests that are invited to the party um, and that he will punish those who have this sort of foreign attire, this this unnatural or, or not right non- attire, um, those who sort of try to sneak in and leap over the threshold. And, um, and I wonder if Zephaniah is pointing that out. And, and I think the, the application to that, or um, Jesus is connecting to Zephaniah, but I think the application to all that is, is like, I, I think there's, there's plenty of people who want in some ways to be a part of the celebration. Like they want the party, but they don't want to recognize God's desire, design or authority for it. Like they, mm. they want to be in some ways in God's will in that, but they don't want to do it God's way. And, um, and, and Jesus will point that out both. He's already done it. He's going to continue to do it of like, look, like it, it's, I, I know you want the, the heaven, the, the, the final thing, like you want to punch your ticket into heaven, but you don't want Jesus's lordship over you like that. That's part of the invitation. Like that's part right. of how, how it goes. Yes, it is absolutely by grace through faith, but that involves Jesus's lordship over the part, every area of your life. And so um, are, are you being consecrated for the party? Are you being made ready for it? Or are you just hoping to show up just by whatever means you decide are the best way to get into the party? Yeah. So stepping back, we just hit on three really powerful parables and they were all meant to kind of indict and call out the religious leaders. And it's again, that reminder that the gospel message, is not about control. It's not about rule. It's not about authority, but it is about entering God's kingdom through repentance and through faith. We are to wear the garments of salvation given to us by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And so there's kind of two different roads and people both think they're headed the same direction, but these religious leaders are headed towards control and influence and authority and not at all towards the way of Christ, which is humility and service and the gift of salvation. And then we see uh, the Pharisees, and they're working with the Herodians, which uh, I think most contextual readers would be like, well, those two groups don't seem to be uh, people that would naturally work together. It seems like the enemy of their enemy is a friend. And and even more so, the question they ask about taxes, um, it's probably good that both crowds are there because um, they, they would have stood very different on the answer to this question. And I think their goal is to sort of try to sway some of these crowds that are supporting Jesus to, to be a little more divided. Uh, that that maybe maybe we can maybe we can get Jesus to answer a question in a way that causes a whole segment of the crowd that's following him to, to not be happy with him. And so um, that seems to be their goal. It's like politics in America, right? And so mm. um, 
Matthew Smart to include some of these details. And um, yeah, it's a question about taxes or tribute, as Luke uh, would tell the story. Um, and there's two groups, and they're all, all the groups are going to answer that question very differently of what do we do with taxes. Um, and the coin itself, I love that Jesus asked for the coin in the temple because they're not supposed to have it there. Uh, so somebody's carrying a coin and has already made their position on whether they should carry the coins. Uh, but the, the, the coins of the day said Caesar, son of God, or something along those lines. There's all sorts of different inscriptions, but they often spoke about Caesar's divinity. And uh, maybe I'll include a link to, to these coins. And um, Jesus is like, who's, who's inscription? Like, whose face? Like, whose icon? What, what, what image and, and inscription is, is on this? And it's, a, yeah, it's, 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 it's Caesar and son of God. And it's like, well, whose inscription is on you? What image is on you? And, and according to Genesis 1, God. Like that's, that's the one on us. So it's like, look, like this is simply Caesar's like, give it back to him. This idolatrous coin, he can have it. Who cares? But don't you dare give him your worship. Like Mm. you are God's image. And so what you are to give back is to God. Um, and, and to worship him. And he masterfully gets out of the, the problem without probably ticking off anybody, but at the same time, ticking off everybody, um, uh, around, around the question of taxes. And, um, and yeah, I don't think it's the hardest teaching to, to, to parse out, um, but probably a really convicting one too. Yeah. Speaking deep, deep truths about our identity and who our loyalty belongs to. Yeah. Um, then we get a question of the greatest commandment, which hear me, uh, that was a, a, a common not, not an abstract. First, the Sadducees oh, yeah. asked about the resurrection. Uh, so yeah, the Pharisees and the Herodians had their chance, and now the Sadducees are like, okay, we're going to trap him and see. Remember, the goal here is like, they don't like Jesus. They don't want him around. They're losing their influence and power and control, which they wanted. But they know the crowds are big fans of Jesus, and so they're trying to kind of turn the crowds against Jesus so that they can get him out. Yep. And Jesus, I love some of Jesus' one-liners. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, uh, which is great. So, um, I mean, these people have memorized their scriptures. They, they, they know them, but he clearly points out that um, these statements. And then Jesus uses the Torah. The Sadducees uh, were sort of Torah-specific. Uh, they didn't necessarily use all the writings. and all, So um, they kind of rejected a lot of the later writings. And so um, the Torah just doesn't speak a lot about the afterlife. Uh, there's very little about it. And so um, they, they, they tended to have a pretty um, non-bodily resurrection understanding of, of anything in the afterlife. And so, um, but Jesus here uh, brilliantly uses the Torah to prove to them the eternality of God with the eternality of like our, our souls, our, our personhood. And so um, Jesus is just brilliant and probably came up with an argument that seemed that nobody had really confronted them with before. And everybody is sort of left amazed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, then, and then we get the question about the great commandment, which once again, this is, um, a question that that did exist before Jesus's time uh, that people would often answer. Uh, the two big rabbinic camps answered it. Uh, Shammai would answer that the Shema and uh, keep the Sabbath or like obey. Basically, it's like the, the main rule. And Shammai was all about obedience. Uh, Halal's answer was the Shema. And then um, what is hateful to you do not do to your neighbor. So the sort of negated understanding of things like don't don't do anything bad that you don't want bad done to you and jesus doesn't take either one of their positions um probably closer to hillel but ultimately says like look this is about love like the the yoke i am bringing is how you love god and how you love other people that is my teaching um not about avoidance but about love and Mm -hmm. and so um it's 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 taking it that much further 
Yeah, it's there simply. I didn't spend a ton of time thinking about why Matthew put it right here in this specific place, but it's just, it's one of the most powerful passages that we have in the Bible. I think that, that come down to the heart of who Jesus is and what we are to live for. Yep. And then um, I sort of love all these back and forth. Sometimes it's the mm-hmm. the leadership attacking Jesus. Sometimes it's Jesus being like, now do I think about it? Um, he, he sort of goes on the offensive and Jesus here is pointing out like just a, an interpretive problem where he's like, look, like you guys are all waiting on this Messiah, the, 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 the Messiah to come and, and the son of David and one is coming that, that will be in this line. And everybody's excited about that, which is true. He's like, but let's, let's also think David, David referring to this son that would come calls him Lord. And so he, he's sort of pointing out the, the, the problem of, of even David, David in, in his led by the Holy Spirit moment saying that this, this, this one who is coming is not just like a regular person. It's not, it's not going to be a king just like me. There's something mm-hmm. divine or God-like or Lord about this one who is coming. And, and he's pointing out like, don't you guys get that? <laughs> like, it's probably kind of fun for Matthew to write all this out and think about how they perceived it, even how the disciples hearing all of it perceived it before the crucifixion and the resurrection versus afterwards. And and no one dared ask them a question after that. Um, They're sort of like, oh, like he, he keeps pointing out things that we've never, it feels like we've never really thought of or understood. Yeah. And then uh, we get to these woes. So Jesus Mm -hmm. immediately goes into this whole um, laying it out for this group of Pharisees. So he's just manhandled the Sadducees probably more than anybody else in the previous uh, couple chapters. Uh, But here he is just laying into this group of Pharisees. Um, And and I love it. And and even the opening where he's like, look, they sit on the Moses seat, which is like the time in the temple. The only time you sit on the Moses seat when you're reading from the Torah. And so he's like, when they, when they're on the Moses seat, listen to what they have to say because they're just reading scripture. Listen to them then, but everything else don't do what they do uh, because of all these ways that they live. And he goes on to critique all these ways that they live, um, that, that they're hypocrites, that, that what they want to do is be seen by others and they lord it over people. They, they try to um, have positions and, 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 and all these sort of things and, and they abuse people in ways that don't show justice and mercy and they try to act more pious than everybody else, but on the inside they're not. And so each of these woes lays out so much of, of, of sort of a critique of the Pharisees. Yeah. I mean, I think just reading through Matthew and spending time thinking about the kingdom of God and the statements that Matthew or that Jesus repeats in the book of Matthew um, has been really convicting to me of how upside down the kingdom of God is, how much it is about caring for the people on the margins and the least of these, of offering freedom. It's about justice and mercy and faithfulness and serving others instead of ourselves. And you just can't, you can't have both. You can't have, I don't know, the influence and the control and the authority in this world and also faithfully walk in God's kingdom. And so the what he's pointing out here, of course, is to the scribes and the Pharisees, but it's just personally really convicting for me and how often I think of myself before I think of others and how often my life and patterns model the Pharisees and the scribes here instead of Christ. Yeah. And, and yeah, some of these woes are more convicting than others. Like even the, the Pharisees getting told like, look, you, you tithe and, and do this. And, and that was, that was legitimate that they, they were tithing. They were, they were giving a certain amount based upon uh, their, their spices and all this kind of stuff, but they, they were missing the weightier things of the law, like justice and mercy. And so um, even as us as Christians, it's like, 
Uh, I think sometimes we we go, you know what? I've read my Bible. I've I've I'm tithing to my church, just like the Pharisees were. Uh, I am doing all these things, but so much of our lives may not be marked by mercy and justice and caring for those that um, mm-hmm. might might need mercy and justice. And, and I wonder if Jesus would look at some of the parts of our lives, um, not, not in a way, I always remember the gospel after this, but uh, in a way that sometimes goes like, whoa, like that is not, you are missing out on the weightier things that I've desired out of your life. And so, um, yeah, now ultimately I'm judged because of Jesus's work, but um, there, there's definitely these, these tones where it's like, you know what? I, I wonder if Jesus would have said the same thing to me. Um, if, if I would have been more like the Pharisees than I care to admit. Mm-hmm. And I love uh, up till now, there's six woes that Jesus had said. And then on the seventh one, uh, so uh, with the woes, as they're continuing, uh, there's definitely, uh, we haven't gotten there in Isaiah, but in Isaiah, there's, there's these six woes that come at the beginning of the book. Um, and uh, it's towards the, the leadership and all these problems that Israel's having. And it's about pride. It's about uh, self-righteousness and, and some of that. And, um, and then in, in Jesus' teaching, it gets seven, and it speaks towards their, their connection to their past and their forefathers and stuff like that. And I wonder if Jesus using seven here, and then he says things like, fill up uh, then the measure of your fathers, or uh, as Hebrew can also be rendered, complete what your ancestors have started. And, and I wonder if he's like, you know what, like those woes, like they were incomplete. You guys are like the, the ultimate play out of, of sin and brokenness. And, and that theirs was pride and it was obvious. Like you guys are so deceptive. Like this is just the, the, the worst of the worst mm-hmm. uh, of this all. You complete the sin of your fathers. Um, and so it's just, it's just a shot at this group that I think it's just, sometimes we probably need to frame ourselves. I think sometimes we think of um, that we're like in the disciples listening to Jesus accuse these Pharisees and not stepping in to be accused. And I think sometimes we have to read this text as the ones who are accused as well. Um, we still rest in the grace of Jesus in the midst of that, but that we are accused of being hypocritical and not doing all the things that um, Jesus ultimately has called us to. Yeah. Sweet. Psalms on that bright note. <laughs> transition point. <laughs> Well, we do get a bright note. Psalm 147 is yeah. certainly a bright note. Yeah. Um, these last five psalms of the book of Psalms are all these hallelujah psalms. Uh, they always start and end with that. Uh, and this is no exception. And it's just adoration, thankfulness. It's like, God, this is what you do, and you're worthy of praise for it. Um, so great. Yeah, I loved verse 11. It talks about how um, God is pleased in our source of hope, which is his steadfast love. It's not in what we can make of ourselves or do or accomplish, but it's when our hope is fixed on Christ and well in God and his love. And then uh, this little section of Psalm 119, which I think is one of the more memorable sections of Psalm 119, though yeah. there's plenty of them. Uh, and and uh, yeah, just a conviction of reading through the psalmist say these things about the words of God and whether I feel the same way. Like, do I feel like all my past and life should, should and can be illuminated by the word of God? And, um, and, and is that what I listen to? And is that the main voice that's guiding my decisions, my convictions, my affections, all those sort of things. Yeah. I mean, I think we look at blogs, Twitter, books, the news, whatever, because we want to stay on top of what's going on. We want to know every vantage point and every perspective. We find value even, especially I think in our culture and knowledge and being aware of what's going on. But this passage reminds us that 
reminds us that God's word gives us wisdom and understanding. So step back for a second and consider why do you read your Bible? Is it because you're supposed to or is it because it is sweet to you and it gives you the wisdom and understanding that our entire world is seeking and longing for, but we have it in God's word. Yeah. And if you've made it these eight months with us, I I hope it's because, yeah, that like not just a a checklist of I need to read through my Bible, but a I just want the sweetness of knowing the God of the universe that much more. Yeah. So next week, what should we be on the lookout for? Yeah. Okay. So Old Testament, I would say like you're going to basically spend the entire time in genealogy, Uh, fight through it. Um, But I'll just give you a little like a little glimmer is look for the guy who made the flat cakes in chapter nine. I just found that to be really interesting. And think about like, why did God include the story of the guy who made the flat cakes? Why is that there? Um, And New Testament next week, you're going to focus a lot on the judgment that's coming, the destruction of the temple. uh, That's going to happen a few decades after what's being written right now. And then the return of Christ. And so I would just want to encourage you while you're reading the different stories to step back and see the larger threads and themes in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, for me, the Old Testament, yeah, it's not the most riveting section of scripture um, and bear with it, but uh, notice what the author includes. Notice where he suddenly or she goes into more details um, or uh, who gets left out. Like we don't get all the 12 tribes listed in the groups of, of tribes. So um, notice those kind of things as well. And then in New Testament, ah, oh, this, I'm so glad that chapters 24 and 25 are, are grouped together um, because they, 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 they're so symbiotic. Um, but as you get into 24 uh, this week, um, it gets into very um, uh, apocalyptic uh, type language. And um, I think immediately, particularly in the context that many of us have, have come from, we immediately go into this sort of kind of left behind us future orientation of things. But uh, I want I want you to stop and notice what question Jesus is answering when he starts going into the, the, the discussion. And then at the very end, it's important to note um, the end of the section, he says that this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so with that in context, as you're reading it, think through that that he's told these people all this stuff, all this crazy stuff he's talking about. And he says, this generation will not pass. And so um, how would all these things happen if this generation is not supposed to pass? And and what might Jesus be referring to? Um, And I think that that changes some of the ways we look at this passage and Mm. and how we should read it uh, without necessarily jumping uh, into this future orientation of something in a left behind book or something like that. And so, um, yeah, I I want us, I want us to, to make sure we contextualize even apocalyptic language really, really well. Yeah. So that's it. Thanks everybody. Thanks. Thanks.